this week on the It's a Monkey podcast. Everybody thinks that they're brilliant at hiring. The evidence is that um, a few organizations are better than others. Uh, but I think we tend to think that it's all up to the individuals. And I think, you know, much of the body of my work essentially argues that talent, whatever we mean by that, is contextual. You can put people in some situations and they will flourish and do brilliant work and put exactly the same people in a different context and they will fail. So I think the uh, environment in which people are asked to work has a huge impact on their capacity to deliver. Good afternoon, good evening, hello wherever you are in the world. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO of Manage Flutter, soon also Manage Social as well. If you haven't signed up for our alpha, go to uh, managesocial.com, a brand new exciting product to help you with Twitter and Instagram. You're listening to episode 87 of our regular podcast. We try to get them out weekly. Um, today, for people watching on Periscope, it is Wednesday the 29th of March. We're going to try to get this out by this Friday. Um, which will be the 31st of March. As usual, I have my co-host, and this time co-hosts with me, Kate Frappel, who is um, the design lead at Manage Flitter, um, is joining me. Thank you so much, Kate. It's good to be back. And uh, we've dragged in again Joe Safine Pinto, who's the business operations manager at Manage Flitter, um, uh, to join us again on the podcast as well. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on again. <laughs> So later on in the show, we've got a fantastic interview lined up for you. I managed to organize an interview with Margaret Heffernan. Now, Margaret has two TED Talks that have over 2 million views, one of them nearly 3 million views. Now, there are not many people in the world that um, have such fantastic talks that have had such high impact. Now, Margaret is the CEO of five businesses. She's the author of many books, one of which has been called a classic. So I'm not going to talk much more about my talk with Margaret. Needless to say, uh, Margaret is a very smart woman and we had a chat about all sorts of exciting uh, topical areas of interest if you're an entrepreneur or if you're a leader or manager. So that's coming up later on in the show. Um, previously, last week's podcast, I spoke with Matcha Kruntz who uh, works in innovation at Cisco and we chatted about the internet of things. Now that was also one of my favorite chats uh, and uh, we, we had a really fantastic chat so go to itsamonkey.com if you missed last week's podcast and check out my uh, our chat with Machek Krantz. With all of that done remember you can email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. We've been getting great emails about people wanting to be on the show. Please keep that coming. We are always looking for interesting people to talk to on the show so please email us. Let's get right into the tech news as always, Kate, I see Elon Musk has got a little bit of time in his hands these days. He's, you know, despite launching rockets into space and bringing them down and landing them, right? Not just launching them, bring them down and landing them. Um, and, and an electric car, the Tesla. And not only that, solving South Australia's energy problems as well. He's obviously got a little bit of time still left on his hand because he's getting involved in another interesting area. Tell us about what Elon Musk is up to now. Yeah, so his new venture is called uh, Neuralink, uh, which is the vision to merge the human brain with artificial intelligence. So basically to make everybody a cyborg. 
So still very, very early days. And I think there's the start is going to be helping people with substantial medical issues like Parkinson's and things like that. It's still so um, misunderstood. We still don't understand how neurons work. And um, they even say his company that it's just, you know, such early days. But the, the idea is eventually to have the brain or ourselves connected to software, to hardware, which ties in with our chat last week about Internet of Things, which is having everything connected with everything, right? And that's really the final piece in a way. Yeah, definitely. Um, and on that topic of sort of what his original aims are, are to solve uh, some chronic conditions like epilepsy and depression as well as Parkinson's. Um, but yeah, they're also not the only uh, people in this space. So the former founder of Braintree, so Brian Johnson, also has a startup called Cornell. Um, and it also uh, aims to reverse effects of uh, neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah, and um, you know, to crack your head open and insert something in it at the you know at this point with the current understanding, um, it's it's a big risk. So currently, notes. I mean, I wouldn't be keen. Um, as I'm sure you wouldn't be if you're healthy and there's no need to it. But, you know, it's got yeah. to start somewhere. I believe there's actually the first head transplant happening um, in December this year. This year. This year. And there's yeah. um, some chap that he's, you know, unlucky enough to have some congenital, very serious congenital issue. And there's some, I'm trying to remember if it's an Italian or Russian um physician that has agreed to to try to do a head transplant see if i can dig up the story um for for next yeah. week but there yeah. are like a limited amount of uh people in the world who are um i guess they're called trans transhumanism and they have uh bits and pieces that aren't natural i guess inside but for the most part people don't like cutting themselves open and inserting things it's only if you're sort of borderline uh like have a medical condition where it's sort of one of your last resorts, I guess. I believe with Parkinson's, it's, it can it can help um, some of these. They find the part of the brain and it's it almost um, relieves the, um, the tremors. Yeah, definitely. I think that there would be a lot of benefits, uh, especially in the medical field. So, yeah, look, Elon Musk, of course, has become a household name. He originally um, was involved in PayPal and is part of what's known as the PayPal Mafia, a whole group of guys that landed up creating spin-off businesses. LinkedIn is also um, from uh, Reid Hoffman, is from PayPal. David Sachs, Yammer, is from PayPal. And, of course, Elon Musk as well. And proud to say he grew up, uh, Elon Musk grew up relatively close to me. Oh, just, really? just north of Johannesburg, a town called Pretoria. Which is known for its jacarandas and one of its and and also uh, one of the capitals. We have uh, uh, we have three capitals. I think they still do. And um, yeah, so uh, South Africans are very proud of uh, Elon Musk. He left the country relatively early. I think seventeen or eighteen to go to Canada. And um, he he always you know when you're in South Africa, everything the excitement was always happening outside and we had a great uh, there was a great mystique around america we all always dreamt of of going to america everything i remember we used to read comics and at the back of comments were these adverts for just interesting interesting gadgets that we could never get <laughs> just, you know all sorts of sea monkeys and all sorts of things that just as a kid you were like where's this mystical land america where you can wow. get all sorts of interesting things so it uh, does seem like a lot of um well, personally, I've met a couple of uh, South Africans and they all seem to have this kind of entrepreneurial 
streak in them. You know what it is, and we've chatted a little bit about this when it comes to Israel, it's um, the propensity for risk. You know, you grow up in a country where there's a lot of change and, um, you know, your risk, your tolerance for risk is different in a country like Australia where everything's steady state. So you, you learn to grow up with a lot of uncertainty and that, so starting a business, relatively speaking, isn't as scary as in Australia where everything's just wonderfully even keel and then a business seems scary. So if you, in an unstable environment, a business is not that scary. So I think that's something to do with it. I think also that um, you have to be resourceful to make a living, to get high-paid corporate jobs in South Africa is very difficult. You know, in Australia, if you're smart and work hard, um, you can get, you know, you can get nicely paid jobs. Um, in South Africa, very, very hard. And it's expensive. You have to pay for your security. You have to pay for your medical care. You have to pay for all sorts of things. And there's no safety net, right? So it's uh, if you're at the bottom, you're at the bottom. In Australia, um, all sorts of safety nets. So I can see some chat happening on Periscope. So to us Periscope followers, uh, welcome. We try to do this 230 um, Sydney time every Wednesday. We're not always on time, but keep an eye out on our Twitter feeds. Uh, we love having our Periscope um, followers um, watch us. So that's Elon Musk. We're going to be watching that with, with great interest. Interesting to see where that's going to go in the next 5, 10, 20 years when eventually we'll be one with our computers. Interesting, I did buy a new fridge this week, I have to say. Okay. And first time I bought a fridge in 20 years. The last time I bought mm. one was 20 years ago. It's like a connected fridge. I didn't even see a connected fridge. I didn't even see one connected fridge available for sale. I don't know. I assume they exist. But in uh, one of these, I went to Bing Lee and I just had a quick r look around and there was nothing that was touting itself as a connected fridge. So wow. Yeah. Because they, they I don't know a lot about them, but um, Apple, for example, and Google, I think as well, have these like Google Home, I think they're called, devices and they you can talk to them remotely and they can turn things on and off in your house and I assume that they would connect appliances like fridges. Well, I think as I've spoken about many times in the podcast, what would be great if your fridge had, fridge had intelligence to give you a ping when you're not using something that's going to go off, right? Send you, send you a message. Low. And, or you're running low. A notification <laughs> saying, hey, your almond milk by tomorrow is not going to be tasting good, <laughs> right? Use it today because I'm always, you know. Not just regular milk. It has to be almond milk. <laughs> almond milk, of course. Come on. You know, um, anyway, that's uh, Elon Musk and uh, internet connected of things. My fridge is still not connected to the internet, which I'm not happy about. But anyway, uh, next news story, Samsung. Now, we've got someone in the office who loves her Samsung. Um, she was very upset when, when the note was pulled from everywhere. And I see Samsung, Joe, um, have announced that they're finally launching the first phone after their problematic Note 7. That's correct. There's a, a launch happening tomorrow, actually. So that should be interesting to see what officially comes out from them. But there have been so many rumours about what this uh, new Galaxy S8 phone is going to look like. Um, and there's been a few leaks and videos. So what do, what do the rumours say? Anything? What's the most exciting um, new feature? Is it just processor? Is it a different form factor? It's probably the form factor. So, well, for me, I'm... Personally, I think the form factor is probably the most exciting. Uh, although I'm, I'm still a little bit um, hesitant about the the whole bezel-less design that's coming out at, at the moment. It's, mm -hmm. It seems that there's this um, design that that everyone's starting to follow. Um, the, I think the the rumor is they're still going to keep the curved edge, but it's going to be completely bezel-less. Um, 
and there's going to be no buttons, so you got more room on that screen to 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 use. When you say no buttons, no buttons on the side. Oh, there'll be buttons on the side. It seems, but it looks like they're getting rid of the the button at the bottom, the that home button. Right. Yeah, but you know what? That was one of the things that I liked about Samsung. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the the Google Pixel phone that I've got doesn't have the button and, you know, you live with it and everything. But uh, that was one of the features that I actually liked. It's nice to have that tactile feel that being able to press something. I, I've got an HTC, which I really like. And um, I like it so much that uh, I just bought a brand new one of the exact same phone because I, I had dropped it in uh, some water. But it's also it doesn't have any buttons as well. No, well, there's oh, is that the you? So you must have a that is that a fingerprint button at the yeah, bottom? Yeah, I, I actually actually never use that. Oh, interesting. That. But uh, I just use the back, the soft back button. Ah, yeah, okay, and yeah. And sometimes I think the home one. But what's the price point um, supposed to be like on the S eight? Ooh, Any I'm actually idea? not sure. I didn't um, see anything about that. It still surprises me that you know good phones are are still pretty expensive. I mean, this HTC cost me a thousand dollars. Yeah, right? easily. Which, uh, um, nice thing about this HTC external SD, which you can now get up to one terabyte iPhone people. My iPhone friends are always deleting photos, right? <laughs> it's because they're running out of space. <laughs> so, um, and it's nice to just store all my pho- photos and, and I mean, I'm always got, I've got tons and tons of space on there. I think I've got 128 gigs or something, which is more than, you know, I can download on Spotify some local uh, music so that when you're sitting on a plane, you've got, you've, you've got some nice music locally and things like that. But I assume, I assume the Samsung's pretty similar. I hope so. That's something I actually didn't see. Uh, if they're keeping the whole... I think I saw it has an external drive. Oh, good. I yeah. like that. The, the Pixel doesn't have that, but I've got the 128 gigs, so Internal that's plenty. Internal. It is plenty. Uh, the, the other thing is there that it seems like they're splitting it. There's an S8 and the S8 Plus. Right. Um, and it's a monster of a size. Uh-huh. How big is it? <laughs> it's a 6.2-inch display. Right. I don't know how you're going to carry that around in your hand. I think the Pixel the Pixel's only 55 Right. So that's a massive display. People it's seem to like their big phones though, right? They do, but now it's like now that's almost that's tablet. And it I gives guess. you and it gives you longer battery. That's true. Because they can fit these batteries in. Yeah. I have to say I had my old phone on flight mode um, and it was fully charged and the battery just doesn't run down. It's incredible. I mean, you know, we forget that we put a lot of pressure on these manufacturers saying the battery, the battery, but it's it's actually because these things consume so much battery. It's not actually the battery. If you, you, you leave your phone on flight mode, it'll just go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. So the batteries are, are pretty impressive, actually. So that's the new Samsung. Anything else exciting that you want to highlight us about the Samsung? They've got their own virtual assistant that they're going to... Put uh-huh. in there called Bixby. I, <laughs> to be honest, I have never heard of it. Do people love virtual assistants? I mean, I don't use a virtual assistant. I know in the States they got Amazon, is it Echo? Yes. I think the Amazon Echo that people tend to love and has um, become quite popular. I don't think it's really taken off yet in Australia. I don't even know if it's available in Australia. Not sure. Yet. Um, but I've never really seen anyone that's a huge 
fan of these assistants. They're all still, still novelty, but the Amazon Echo seems to have moved to the next stage. Yeah, no, I do like my Google Assistant. I like to be able to say, you know, okay, Google, take me home, and then it just sets it all up for me. Simple commands like that. But, yeah, it is a little bit of a novelty. I think yesterday at lunch we were talking to Siri <laughs> pretty much all of lunch, <laughs> asking her questions, silly questions, had a good laugh. Yeah, bit of a, mo- a novelty. So they're going to have their own assistant. They say they leapfrogging Google's assistant. I wonder why they're doing that. Yeah. It seems like a lot of effort. It does. I think with Android, it's a little bit, you know, and this is where iPhone is definitely uh, makes more sense where, you know, the software and the device is, is all integrated. You, you've got Android and then manufacturers put their own flavor of it on top of it. And I guess that's where Google Pixel is at an advantage. It's native <laughs> Android. But um, it's a little bit confusing. You've got Samsung, but it's Android, but they rip out some of the features, and it's it's all a it's, it's a little bit confusing, and that's why people like the elegance of the closed ecosystem with yeah. um, with Apple. I think Apple um, Apple announced some new um, iPads. I got an email. Did you guys get an email about that? No, but I think I've seen mm. some advertisements yeah. on the street. Yeah, some new iPads. So um, yeah. Anyway, we're going to keep a, a lookout for the, the Samsung, what's it, the S8? S8. S8. Yeah. Any, any news on the Note 8 that you're waiting for? Couldn't see anything pop up, but <laughs> I'm hoping. Let's <laughs> hope for the Note 8. Anyway, that's Josephine Pinto, Business Operations Manager at Manage Flitter. Um, basically, that means she does everything. So, <laughs> Joe, thanks for, thanks for joining us on the podcast. We're going to take a short break. Um, but after the break, we come back to the fantastic interview that I did with Margaret Heffernan, who is the CEO of Five Businesses and, and author. And uh, we had a fantastic chat about um, all things relating to team and business. And uh, we're going to come back to that um, after this break. You're really going to enjoy this interview, so stick around. Hi, this is Dave with Manage Flitter. Manage Flitter is a tool that helps you work smarter and faster on Twitter. With ManageFlitter, you can clean up and grow your Twitter account. You'll also get useful Twitter analytics, social content scheduling, and much more. Go to manageflitter.com and start your free trial today. You're back with It's a Monkey Podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I'm the CEO of ManageFlitter. Now, on this podcast, we talk about everything relating to tech, startups, entrepreneurship, um, but we also talk about productivity and teams. And it's a cliche in our industry. When you ask anyone a tip on growing your business, they say, hire right, have the right team. And in, and in Silicon Valley, um, which is the, the heart of our industry, you have companies like Google that pay some people millions of dollars literally just to sit and do nothing or do a project of their choice just in case they may need them someday or um, so that their competitors can't, um, can't get hold of them. And I'm happy to say I've, I've tracked down someone who's really um, sort of an expert in the area of, of realizing talent, um, of recognizing and releasing the talent that often lies buried inside organizations. I'm, I'm happy to say uh, at the end of my Skype line is Margaret Heffernan. And Margaret is an international businesswoman, author, interviewer, TED speaker. Uh, Margaret worked for 13 years for the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, where she produced a wide range of radio and TV programming and was previously the CEO of five businesses 
and the author of five books, including Willful Blindness, which uh, was a finalist for the Financial Times Best Business Book Award. And Margaret is, uh, has the, the status of having two TED Talks, both over 2 million views, one nearly 3 million views, um, about, uh, with the topic of Dare to Disagree, and another uh, talk, Why It's Time to Forget the Pecking Order. With all of that, Margaret, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So in our industry, um, we talk a lot about productivity. We talk a lot about hiring, right? Um, and I guess we spend so much time, and you, you make this point in your talk, we spend so much effort getting the right people, but do we make the same amount of effort getting the best out of them? Well, I think um, we probably don't. I think there's a lot of magical thinking around who the right people are. There's a sort of belief that, you know, some people have talent and some people don't, although there's no viable, predictable way of identifying or measuring talent. So I think um, everybody thinks that they're brilliant at hiring. The evidence is that um, a few organizations are better than others. Uh, but I think we tend to think that it's all up to the individuals. And I think, you know, much of the body of my work essentially argues that talent, whatever we mean by that, is contextual. You can put people in some situations and they will flourish and do brilliant work and put exactly the same people in a different context and they will fail. So I think the uh, environment in which people are asked to work has a huge impact on their capacity to deliver. Let's go back to organizations. You mentioned that, you know, we haven't quite worked out the or people, everyone thinks they're good at hiring, but very few people are. What does the research show about the organizations that are actually good at hiring? We have a, have a, a lot of people that listen to this podcast that, that are CEOs of their own business and everyone approaches it from a different perspective. But what is the hard data and some of these companies that have shown to be good at hiring, what do they do differently? Well, I think the first thing they do is they think very seriously and collect a lot of data on who does well in the organization and um, and what are their characteristics. So, for example, at Google, they did a huge project known as Project Oxygen, looking at what were the characteristics of their best managers. And out of the eight characteristics that they found in a technical expertise was the eighth. Uh, the most important thing was my manager cares about me and when I'm stuck will sit down and help me solve my problem. Interesting. So they've thought a lot about the relationship between, you know, managers and team members. They've thought a lot about the, if you like, personality characteristics. So they hire for courage. They hire for a sense of fun. They hire for persistence and conscientiousness. And all of that really outweighs uh, domain expertise. They're really looking for a great capacity to learn and not to give up when things get hard. How do you measure that in an interview? I mean, people will obviously a lot of the time give you the answers that you want to hear. Um, very difficult to um, surface that in people, isn't it? Well, I think the first thing is that, um, again, the, what the research shows is that if you're going to get really good at interviewing as a company, uh, you have to have at least four different people doing interviews. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, different is key. If you have four identical people doing interviews, you know, you may as well just have one. So you need people with different outlooks, different mindsets, different experience, different gender, different ethnicity, because different people are going to pick up on different things. Um, you need to be quite fastidious in what you're asking about and in keeping notes so that you can review the responses together later and not just go on gut instinct. All the research shows that people who go on gut instinct are just biased. They hire in their own image and, um, and that generally works out badly. It's a, it's a well-known fact that everyone likes to hire people like themselves, right? Yeah, and exactly. It's, and it's a well-known trap. Yeah, and, and the only way that you really stop that is by making the hiring and interviewing process collective rather than individual. What's interesting is Google used to, I think in, it might have been that same research or different research where they used to do um, many rounds of interviews and um, they cut that back because they said more interviews hasn't necessarily meant that the hires they've made um, were better. Right. I mean, what they discovered is that, you know, definitely some people are better at interviewing than others. Nobody's infallible. Um, and that, you know, if you can get four different kinds of people, all of whom are pretty good at interviewing, that's enough. I mean, there, at one point, Google went through a phase of being kind of notorious for how long its hiring process took. And that was both expensive and it gave them quite a bad reputation locally. So they were quite kind of uh, disciplined and concerted in how they made their hiring and recruiting process faster and more reliable at the same time. They also seem to reduce the, um, the the sort of basic requirement. At one stage, I think they would only hire people with a minimum of a master's degree, and I, I believe they scrapped that totally. There's no minimum requirement at all yeah. now. That's right, and in fact, they you know quite often hire people who haven't gone to university. What they're really looking for, you know, are the things I mentioned before, which is tremendous capacity to learn, curiosity, courage, fun, conscientiousness. I mean, I, I really that point. I'm, you know, I'm re reflecting this back on our small organization. We have, you know, you know about twelve people, and um, when we interview, and I, and when I do get people um, at at various um, sort of experience levels within the organization to um, meet with candidates, it's exactly right. I get things that I missed about the candidates, um, and and it's, it's it's it seems one of these things that seems obvious when you hear it, but it's definitely and what you're doing in an interview interview process you're just trying to surface you're trying to information gather as much as you can you know we're a small company we can't we don't have the leverage to to interview people seven times we've we've got one or maximum two interviews so we've got a really limited time to try assess that candidate and the stakes are pretty high because our team numbers are so small right right i mean i think the other thing that, that you know is quite important certainly in my experience is uh, to have a probation period so that you can really see what people are like at work. Sure. Um, and that's, you know, and that's for both sides, which is, you know, they don't get much. If the, if you don't give them, if you don't spend much time interviewing them, they don't have much time to get to know you. Works both ways. So the only way you're really going to find out if you're going to work well together is to try it. So I think, you know, a sense that, you know, there's a kind of get to know you period is really fundamental. 
The other thing which I think is a kind of fantastic question uh, for interviewing is in the course of your career, who has been really helpful to you? Mm-hmm. And the reason I think that's an important question is because quite a lot of people can't answer it. And what that means if they can't answer it is either they think that all of their achievements are completely down to their own brilliance or that they are so self-centered that they haven't noticed how many people around them have been required for them to be successful. So what that means is these are people who aren't very generous and aren't very alert to others and they're going to be toxic that's a very and interesting it, question. It's yes, one of the, it's one of the few absolute questions in my repertoire, if you like, which is if you can't answer that question pretty enthusiastically, I don't want to go on. Interesting. And it's a, it's a simple question, but it reveals so much. Yeah, and it is really astonishing how many people can't answer it. You know, they're completely flummoxed. If I would ask you that question, uh, what would your answer be? Well, we'd be spent, you know, we'd be talking for the next three hours. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm happy with that. Lots to talk about. Um, the, the one question that um, Peter Thiel, who's um, ex-PayPal, he's, he's become quite controversial yeah. because of his involvement with Trump, etc. But, um, yeah. y- you know, a super smart guy, he says the question that he always asks is, what commonly held social norm or, so, or belief do you disagree with and why? And he says mm-hmm. that's that's that reveals a person's ability to to argue in in you know against the tide and how they handle that. That's also quite yeah. an interesting question. Yeah, it is. It is a very interesting question. It's a good test for how far how far people are prepared to think for themselves. So once you've got your team on board, etc., let's let's talk about the the next stage. And Google again has done some interesting research around. Um, around the productivity of teams and I remember when when um, some of this research came out you know some of the people in the tech um, press it was almost anticlimactic the results because the results were basically touchy-feely right the teams that yeah. communicate well and are nice to each other and are kind to each other do the best and it was almost anticlimactic because we were expecting some some great sort of engineering type of you know um, um, sort of result or conclusion yeah. Well, I think, you know, in some way, none of this is new. We've known for decades, really, that you're better off hiring for uh, character than skills because you can teach skills and it's very hard to change character. Um, equally, what the research shows on teamwork is that teams do best not because they have, you know, high aggregate IQ or high individual IQ, but they do best because they, if they get equal participation from everybody, and if people feel accountable to each other. And the way I think about this is it's actually the mortar that matters much more than the bricks. I love that phrase. Yeah, I heard it in one of your talks. Yeah. I really love and that phrase. Mostly, you know, and we mostly think about the bricks, mm. and we spend fortune measuring and calibrating the bricks. And um, and I think what that does is it gives you a ton of data, which gives you a ton of confidence, but actually no insight at all. And I think it's probably particularly bad in our industry, which comes from an, an engineering type of uh, um, measurable mindset. 
That's right. And of course, what it means is essentially you're treating people like widgets. And of course, if you treat people like widgets, that's pretty much how they'll behave. So you're um, kind of constraining your talent from the outset. I mean, I have, you know, I have quite significant questions around our obsession with calibration. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I haven't seen anything that suggests it actually delivers a lot of value except insofar as it may provoke a good conversation around feedback. Mm-hmm. And I think it has a spurious scientific quality that means that people trust it uh, a lot more than they should. So I'm not saying it's absolutely useless, but I don't think it's nearly um, the the powerful tool that people think it is. Because, of course, uh, humans are not machines, and there's a lot of subtleties, a lot of nuance, a lot of things that you can't measure, um, and a lot of contradiction in them that, that you may get metrics coming at pulling in different um, um, sort of directions, um, which will not be revealing anything useful, but yet the productivity uh, may be there. Well, I agree with you about that. And I think the other thing, too, is... Um you know, if you're going to measure something, you have to compare it to something you believe to be good. And this is, you know, this gets philosophically hairy quite quickly, because if I say, okay, here are the numbers around, you know, a good employee, um, good under what circumstances, involved in what kind of work, in what kind of company, in what kind of industry, in what kind of market, under what kind of pressure, And the notion that there's a sort of benchmark, right, this is the model of good, is fine, you know, from a calibration perspective, but things change all the time. So the person who's good in one setting, in one moment in time, may not be great next year. So I just, you know, I think um, what you discover with all these calibration systems is that you know their internal logic is terrific, but their um, there's their foundation is mud, and it's pretty slippery. Yeah, and I I think uh, very interesting. And one of one of the other um, results that you speak about in one of your talks um, that successful groups have social sensitivity sensitivity to each other, but also that the more successful groups has more women in them now. We recently put three job adverts for technical positions, engineering positions. Um, We probably had a total of about nearly 200 applicants. Mm -hmm. We had, I think, three female applicants, right? Right. Almost zero percent. How does our industry, and and this is probably a whole sort of talk unto itself, but I'd be interested in your thoughts as someone who has worked as a CEO and and clearly understands a lot of the different layers. How can our industry address this, even forget the political and, you know, equality side of things, even just from a pragmatic reasons, it's in our own interests to, to, to get this going. You know, how can I, how can we get to a stage where a little company like me can get 50% candidates coming through that are women so that we can actually pick and choose them so that we can aim to have better project outcomes, let alone the equality side of things. Yeah. I mean, it's very difficult because there is so much about engineering um, in the way that it's portrayed 
that puts off most young women. Um, I mean, it's first of all that, you know, the tech industry as a whole has an absolutely poisonous reputation for sexism. Mm -hmm. It's partly that the way that, you know, technology is portrayed in popular media is pretty pale and ugly. Um, is it getting so, yeah. better though, Margaret? Is it getting better? Is the trend going the right way or, or is it just lip service? I and, and I haven't seen anything that suggests it's getting a lot better. Right. I mean, I guess what I would, I would be inclined to do is to try to, and it's hard with very small companies, you know, but try to find women within the company that are prepared to kind of be mentored, coached, apprenticed, you know, to somebody within the business who can kind of train them up. I mean, one thing I would say is in my software businesses, um, the product and project managers that we had were almost all women and they were tremendous. Mm. And the reason they were tremendous is they were fantastic translators between disciplines. So they were very good at explaining to engineers why marketing wanted what they wanted and vice versa. And I think those kind of translation interstitial roles are a really tremendous place for women to get over their fear or dislike of technology and to acquire some real expertise in that domain. Um, but obviously, you know, in companies that are only, you know, two or three people, that's a very hard thing to do. Having said that, you know, I've always had a lot of female engineers in my businesses. They've always been terrific, um, you know, and and largely because they are outstanding. I mean, they're very good engineers, but in addition, they are outstanding communicators. You know, we've, we have um, five women in our organization and um, – what I find, you know, generalizing is dangerous and it's obviously a very a, a small subset um, of self-selected people. But, but with, with our um, females in our organization, I find one common theme of they, they, they're quite unaware of the fantastic work that they're doing you know, in a very different way, um, you know, to the males. They, they have no idea how fantastic some of the work. They don't back themselves um, in the same way, they get quite surprised when I just say you, you're doing some fantastic work here, and I'm, you know, incredibly happy. They, they, they're very understated, and I feel not always in their own interests. Well, I think that's right. Um, I think women are often, you know, their own worst critics. Um, but I think what's important in giving them feedback is to be very concrete about what it is that they're so good at and where the value is that they're bringing. Because telling somebody they're great, it doesn't help them much. I mean, it's sure. nice, sure. but it doesn't give them much sense of what, what value they're adding. Whereas being extremely precise with feedback, um, first of all, encourages specific positive behaviors. And secondly, makes people more inclined to understand where their value comes from. I totally agree. And I, I certainly do 
do give them some specific feedback and um you know we we uh, i'm very grateful and so, some of them are you know for example our design lead who's who's the co-host of parts of the podcast um she's 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 pretty young and inexperienced quote unquote but does some absolutely fantastic work that uh, really has has the level of maturity way beyond her years which has been absolutely um you know core to some of our new products margaret you also talk about that often catastrophes within an organization occur despite the information that is already there. And that really reminded me of a famous air crash that you're probably familiar with. And it was one of the Asian airlines where the co-pilot saw that the airspeed was too low or something like that. And he didn't, yeah. he, 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 because of the hierarchy structure in their culture, he didn't mention it to the pilot and the plane right. crashed and hundreds of people um, died because of that is this still an organ is this still an issue not not in the air industry i know they address that through specific mm -hmm. training but in tech companies in in the west for example do you see that still as an issue that people are actually afraid to rock the boats and to to you know cause themselves problem by by bringing up problematic issues or whistleblowing yeah. in a sense Yes, it's a huge problem. The amount of fear in organizations can hardly be overstated. You know, many of the inquiries into banking fiascos have pointed specifically to hierarchy as a force that depletes people's sense of accountability. You know, if there were a problem, my boss, um, it would be my boss's job to do something about it. Right. If there were a problem, my boss would be doing something about it or it's my boss's job to do something about it. It's not my job. So one of the problems with hierarchy is, is A, it frightens people, B, it constrains their sense of responsibility, and C, it persuades them, since there's always somebody above them, um, that, you know, that, that the problem is not theirs. So again, again, it comes down to if you hire right, you can trust people, right? I always say to my, my team, once, once we've made the decision to hire you, we trust you. We have to. If we don't, we've got bigger problems, right? So, so the trust is there inherently. And obviously it builds up over time and you, you build that trust. But you really, that, that surveillance, um, you know, it still surprises me. I, I hear of organizations where they don't let them use Facebook on their computers during the day and strange, strange rules like that, this type of surveillance where they monitor all their web traffic and have issues if they look at certain sites. I mean, I find it, yeah. I can't see how that would be, be um, positive for uh, along any, you know, point to the productivity food chain. Well, I think that's right. But I think, you know, part of what that is about is um, I think it's a, what I think of as a sort of manufacturing mindset, which is a sense that a well-run organization um, is really tight. It's, you know, that it knows everything, watches everything, calibrates everything, measures everything. Um, and the thing is that that is true for some aspects of a business. If you're uh, manufacturing drugs, for example, you want, you need that level of control in order to be able to provide assurance of, you know, the purity of your product. Um, the problem is that in many aspects of the work that we do, which is about thinking and creativity and innovation, et cetera, it's exactly the opposite, right? Sure. which is you need people to have a high sense of freedom 
And I think, you know, we've been kind of slow to recognize that there are these two distinct operating modes in a business. You know, the kind of repeatable work where quality assurance is key and the breakthrough work where quality assurance is irrelevant. And each of those requires very different kind of systems and cultures and behaviors. And I think what you're saying with the kinds of rules and regs that you refer to is a manufacturing mindset applied to a creative, innovative process. And that just doesn't work. It just doesn't work because what you're doing is you're constraining people's thinking. And I talk to CEOs all the time who say, you know, why are my people not more creative? Well, you've given them so many rules and regulations mm. that all they're trying to do is not the wrong thing. Just to be compliant. So much energy is going into being compliant. Exactly. They don't, and, and we all know creative people need a, need a long runway, right? They just need space space to yeah. space to think um margaret how does some of these topics i mean remote work and um, there's some companies these days that are entirely remote um you know is it possible to apply some of these um you know these understanding and data social sensitivity to each other and things like that to remote teams that are spread out over the world and sometimes even different time zones yeah, well, the, the, you know, the basic research on which all this is based comes from the Center for Collective Intelligence at MIT run by Tom Malone. And after doing the research, they did kind of all the same experiments again, but with uh, remote teams and found exactly the same thing. Oh, interesting. I'll, I'll definitely um, look that up. Margaret, I know time's, time's working against us. I really appreciate um, your um, your time today. If if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't checked out Margaret's TED Talks, please do so. Lots of food for thought. And uh, we really appreciate your time joining us today on the podcast, Margaret. My pleasure. It was really nice to have such a good conversation. Thanks for asking me. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. Kate, so much to talk about in that interview. Um, lots and lots of food for thought. What I really, what I really like is that there's, there's businesses maturing and growing up in terms of what we're looking for in teams, how we're looking to hire, um, you know, looking for things that really matter. You, you know, as a as a founder and CEO, obviously a big part of my job is team, and it's something that I think about a lot. Probably, probably, definitely up there in the top three things that I'm always thinking about in terms of team. And with technical teams, there's always a temptation to find, as as Margaret said, domain knowledge, you know, find someone who's who's got fantastic domain knowledge and, you know, they're the best XYZ program, programmer or database person. But it's interesting, she said, the research of things like empathy and sense of fun and... Uh, curiosity. 
curiosity and ability to stick with a task, you know. And she also said, which is something I'm proud to say that we do, is have multiple people talk to that person, right? Get insights from around the organization. And we try to do that because it's it's hard. And at the end of the day, it's still a, it's still a coin flip. And I think I mentioned in the interview there that Google did some research that said they used to do tons and tons of interviews for, you know, eight, ten rounds. And then they... Then they did uh, a test with fewer interviews and the results were pretty much the same. So once you have a few interviews, you don't really get more insight beyond that. Yeah. Well, she does mention in that interview as well that there's um, it's best to have four very different people. So mm. different backgrounds, experiences, outlooks, gender, ethnicity, all sorts of factors. But also have the same vision, same sort of questions so that you can reconvene and analyze together. Sort of get a, a bit of a standardized questions and answers. Yeah, or at least like you all are on the same page for what you're looking for. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's a cliche, you know, that team is everything, but it's, it's an absolutely, absolutely true cliche. And if you're thinking of starting a business, you are one day going to have to hire, hopefully, if you grow. And, and developing that skill, and it's something that you, you never reach the, the end of the road. You're, you're always learning, and particularly in our industry with technical people and, and creative people. So we're sort of in the middle of you know, designers and developers, and they're both known to be extremely talented, extremely smart, but also known to be um, quirky individuals sometimes, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the interesting thing as well um, that Margaret also mentions um, with that in mind is that hiring people for their skills is easy because skills can be taught and people can, you know, upskill themselves on the side or via YouTube. Um, but finding someone that matches um, personality-wise and has the right characteristics is what the tricky part is. You know, I have to disagree a little bit with her there in terms of skills can be learned yes but a flair for something an aptitude for something you know you could see it with with the people at uni or the kids at, at school where someone would just learn a language easier right or they'd they'd always have a lot of numbers in their heads easier to learn you can't learn to become good with numbers you can't learn to be to become um you know learn languages quicker but yes you can you, you can skill up no doubt Definitely. I mean, and one of the biggest factors, though, is uh, environment. So you could have one person in a particular environment that excels, like, extremely well. They do really good work and you put that same person in a completely different environment and they fail. Mm. So that's sort of a counter-argument to, to your sure. side of the story. Sure. And, th and the wonderful thing about um, hiring people is people are infinitely complex. The dynamics are infinitely complex. There's politics. You put two people in a room, you've got politics. There's one yes. to put a third one in, it's compounds, and so it goes. Um, so it's, it's, it's the team side of things is, is very crucial. And as I've probably said before on the podcast, the number two reason for companies failing in Silicon Valley is co-founder fallouts. Number one is the product not finding its market. And number two is people not getting along. All right, which is which is interesting. Do you think one of the best ways to battle that would be to have very uh, rigid roles? And the co-founder setup. I think the best way to um, deal with that is to have worked together before, right? So, for instance, a lot of Israeli 
startups and co-founders, they were in the same army unit together. Right? Okay. So they have been through a lot together and trained together and faced risks and all sorts of things. And they, you know, it's like they've got a, it's been tried and tested. But if you meet someone at a meetup and you're both passionate about blockchain and you're the next day you've, you know, you're in business on a handshake, you know, it's, uh, it, it's not that certain. So I think that's probably my advice to be. The other thing which people forget is that you can retrofit a co-founder, right? So if you start up as a single founder, mm. either bootstrapped or um, funded, and then you hire someone and they prove to be really good, mm. right? You can retrofit them as your co-founder as well. There's no laws around these things, you know? You, you just... Um, Create the role co-founder. You can even give them equity if you want to. Um, you can. I think that would be the tricky part. Well, that comes down to negotiation and you know a lot of different things. What what they're bringing to the table, whether they're earning a market rate salary or if not, you could say what well, right, we'll give you fifty percent of the salary, but you got equity. It's a, there's there's lots of ways of slicing and dicing this, but you can retrofit a co-founder. It's interesting that you would. Um I mean, it's interesting that it's an option and that you wouldn't just, uh, I guess, hire someone as a, like a senior management role. Depends on a lot of factors. Sometimes people would like that co-founder status. Um, it's interesting that, um, you know, in our industry, it's, it's, it's a status to be a co-founder. Some people want it. Um, some people also um, would rather take uh, a lower salary and have equity if they're backing that ship with the view to... You know, when you, when maybe it lists or sells one day, they get a windfall. And from a business perspective, sometimes it makes sense to secure those team members with equity. So you're aligning interests and suddenly they aligned with you. And it, it's not just a job. Yeah. You know. Well, Margaret mentions that too as well, that um, just teams that are kind and that are accountable to each other. Mm. Um, but I guess also to the business as well, which was where equity could come in. Yeah, and it's interesting with teams. You can feel when a team is a team is working well, you know. And it's um, usually when a when a role doesn't work out. Often there's been a sense that that, and it's not necessarily that there's an issue with the person or the company, but that it's that fit, right? That seat on the bus. Um, it's not not only they have fit with the team, but they 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 the right role for that team. So it's a it's a puzzle. It's Definitely. a puzzle. Definitely. And to try and um, filter or discover those sort of personalities in the interview process is difficult. It's difficult because particularly sometimes people aren't always aware where they themselves will best fit or even yeah. where their best skills are. They'll come in, especially less experienced people, they'll come in and they've studied design, right? But they terrifically, you know, we, we used to work with Chelsea, even hosted this podcast, she studied design, but fantastic salesperson. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. You know, just, just, you know, and sure, great designer too, but you sit there and you think, this, this is a salesperson, right? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. You've got skills and that you didn't know you had. Exactly. So that's where, as a CEO, you can, you know, you obviously got to get buy in from then, but that's the, that, that's the challenge is, is shaping the team so that they're happy and that you're happy. And um, humans are, they, they're not machines and uh, you can't look at them. Um, like that and um you know that there's i've just bought a book it's put together by the harvard business review it's 
managing for new managers or something like that. And it actually talks a lot about all these different issues and research. And, um, you know, there's always always a lot to learn. But anyway, that's episode number 87. Seven. That goes so fast. I have so one fast. question for you. What's that? From the interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Margaret's question. In the course of your career, who has been really helpful to you? Mm-hmm. What would be your answer? Um Face to face or non or, or or someone not face to face, like um, some book I've read or something. Oh no, someone you know. It's impacted your career. Probably, interestingly, probably um, my father and my uncle's business in South Africa because I was a teenager when their business was started and it had some success. Um, you know, not not the success of scale of Facebook or anything like that, but as I. As as a what they call a lifestyle, you know, business. What what it showed me was that you don't have to be anyone with a particular pedigree, or you don't have to have gone to. And you know, they were both migrants that came to South Africa, not knowing the language. Um, my uncle hadn't even finished. I don't even know if he finished high school, you know. And um, they landed up creating a business that uh, employed people and did some fantastic things. Ultimately, last year it got bought by an Australian company, which is interesting. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Um, so that, that just gave me, I guess, a, a, a confidence that um, you don't need any, you don't need to be, besides a will, you don't need to really have anything, you know. So that's probably a, a single identifying feature of, of some people. Otherwise... I would have to think about, um, you know, there have been a lot of people on the way. I've had a lot of, um, I've got a lot of friends that um, are in business as well and we help each other through the bumps in the road. So even though um, at the moment I don't have a co-founder, James used to be the co-founder with Managed Fertis at the moment. Um, I've got you guys, which are, you know, t- terrific, but, um, but I don't have a co-founder per se. Uh, um, but we process a lot together um, but in terms of a, an, another single individual, I'll have to I'll have to come back to you on that one. But <laughs> a lot, like like Margaret said, a lot of people on the way for her, and definitely a lot of people yeah. um, on the way f- for me. You know, and um, it's interesting. I'd I'd like to um, ask someone in an interview one day. I think it's it's a great question to get some background information about the person um, and just how they react, it what is. they have to say. And, you know, sometimes just one little factor changes the whole trajectory. The, um, Malcolm Gladwell's book um, about, um, I forget the name of it, is it Blink? Or one, one of his books where he talks about the 10,000 hours. He, um, you know, he says, he, he, he notes how uh, Mark Zuckerberg um, and Bill Gates, they came from a particular context. For example, Bill Gates had access to a computer. His father was pretty a successful lawyer. You know, a whole context, I'm not taking away from their success at all, but context matters. You know, context really matters and your influences really matter. And it's, research shows that even for children, they only need one influential um, sort of stable adult in their life to be okay. You know, so even if they've got a problematic family, um, if they've got one uncle or an aunt or a neighbor that's just solid and look is looking out for them, the kid lands up soldiering through and doing okay. So, yeah. you know, that often that, that can make uh, the whole difference. So, yeah. Very interesting. Episode 87 is done and dusted next week. Same time, same place. Email us, podcastedittermonkey.com. If you want to be on the show or the Startup Minute, if you're a new startup or existing small business, you want to get some free publicity, email us, tweet us, 
And um, thanks to my co-host, Kate Frappel, and we will be back next week. See ya.